The Slate Political Gabfest is brought to you by Texture, the mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines anywhere using your phone or tablet. Dive deeper into Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more with interactive content for a richer reading experience. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com slash political. And by audible.com, with more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at audible.com slash gabfest. And by Bonobos. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order at bonobos.com slash gabfest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gabfest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for February 12th, 2016, the Happy Valentine's Day Rubio Robot Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am in Washington, D.C. in our studio, our last week in our borrowed studio. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello. That was that uh, title for the show really like smushed together two completely different concepts for me. I'm still thinking about it. Huh. Okay. Well, some of us are in love with Marco Rubio. And oh, right. I am. I forgot. You know, I think I'm, maybe my crush on Marco Rubio has evaporated. Huh. We'll, we'll talk about that. That can be a whole separate topic. Maybe we'll make that the Slate Plus. Uh, I don't think anyone really needs to plumb the depths of that one. Well, you may not be alone in that, which is why it would be really <laughs> interesting. There is uh, John Dickerson of Face the Nation. John, you are where? I am in Greenville, South Carolina, which is a lovely town, except for the fact that it's 21 degrees, or maybe it's up to it's close to 30 now, but it's... Uh, it's quite cold here. And John is there because, hey, GabFest listeners, Saturday night, 9 p.m. Eastern, John Dickerson moderating what promises to be a scorcha of a Republican debate. So tune into that on CBS at 9 p.m. on Saturday. Um, it's going to be – it's not just going to be great because John is doing it, but actually this one's going to matter, John. So, so good luck. <laughs> the fate of the country is in your hands. Yeah, no, that's yeah. that's fine. On this week's Gabfest, we will dispel with a fiction once and for all that John Dickerson does not know what he is doing. He knows exactly what he's doing, thank God. Then, after we've done that, we will talk about the race. So first, we will look at the Republicans after New Hampshire. We will figure out where the GOP is gone, going next. Well, we know they're going to South Carolina next, but where they're going metaphorically next. Then we will contemplate the Sanders steamroller and whether Hillary Clinton can stop it. Then we will talk about the Supreme Court, which has committed an act of environmental violence towards the planet, towards future generations this week. We will talk about the stay that they issued in a very contentious case. We'll have cocktail chatter and Slate Plus, Samantha Bee's full frontal. Is it the political show we've all been waiting for or not? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash gabfestplus. Okay, state of the race. Let us start with the Republicans. They uh, head to South Carolina to meet John Dickerson on Saturday night, as we just said. Um, but they're they're in disarray, except for Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, maybe. Trump, obviously, hugely triumphant in New Hampshire on Tuesday. John Kasich had a very strong night with a decent, although extremely distant, second-place second finish. 
Chris Christie and Carly Fiorina dropped out this week. And uh, Ted Cruz, I think, arguably had another good night because um, he finished third and clearly is the strongest non-Trump candidate in the race, I think. I mean, is that is John, let's start with that. Is Cruz the, the strongest non-Trump candidate? Around. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I, yes, that's true. Um, both ideologically, he is most in sync with the people most likely to participate in caucus and, and primaries. He's also got a heck of a lot of money, um, and he's shown that he's got organizational success. Um, and so there's a, a more um, rigid, not rigid, but more sturdy formula for him to do well. The others who are in the non-Trump category who would have to do well all of their paths to the nomination have a kind of rickety promise that has to be fulfilled. You know, they have to really catch fire suddenly after, even though after months and months and months they haven't been able to. Um, or Donald Trump has to fall of his own, which is, seems to be something he's incapable of doing. He seems to be quite resilient with his voters. So it just requires more, more leaps of faith than Cruz as a Trump challenger. Emily, there's this interesting factoid being circulated, which is that no one has ever finished first and second in Iowa and New Hampshire, as Trump has done, and not gotten the nomination. In the Republican now, Party. Admittedly, this is, in the Republican Party. This is an incredibly small sample size. It's basically a sample size, maybe 10, 10 elections this covers. But is that meaningful, Emily? Well, but Trump breaks so many molds. Why couldn't he break that mold as well? I feel like of all the numbers and points of data out there, that one does not move me in particular. What I'm more struck by is what John just said, which is that it seems like these voters are really sticking with Trump. And because his whole campaign is premised on saying whatever he wants and being outrageous, it's really hard to see how he takes himself down. Where is the GOP money and the GOP kind of elite sentiment going as the the Republican establishment starts to think, well, maybe it is going to be Trump or Cruz? Which way do you think they're breaking, John? They're not breaking at all. They're in pause. That's why Trump and Cruz had good nights in New Hampshire. Rubio fell, Kasich and Bush rose. And so money that was ready to leave Bush to go to Rubio now has to sit. And because Rubio is in in trouble, there is no mainstream alternative right now. And the sorting out process looks like it will be long, ugly, and won't necessarily elevate the person who comes out of it ahead. Can I ask a post-mortem question about Chris Christie? Yeah. So he was the murder-suicide perpetrator who you were talking about over the last few weeks, right? I mean, he viciously went after Marco Rubio. It worked. Now Christie's out of the race, and Rubio has been taken down like five notches. Does, Does he just go back to New Jersey and resume his life as governor? Do the Republican Party somehow come after him with knives and pitchforks for having messed things up? Um, Well, there isn't an organized Republican Party that could do that, because if there were, they would have a number. If there were, they wouldn't wouldn't be in this predicament. I think certainly, though, if you look at Chris Christie's image in the party for anything in the future he might want to do, it's taken some hits. Um, One, for, as you say, he's now going to be forever remembered as the guy who took out Marco Rubio. I think you can add to that the number of Republicans who thought that his late-in-the-campaign embrace of Barack Obama during Hurricane Sandy didn't really do any favors for Mitt Romney. 
in 2012 who uh, who Christie supported. Right. Now there's an overreading of that. People, some people say, oh, you know, he threw the election to him. I, that's not. I don't think that's the case at all. But it nevertheless wasn't very good sportsmanlike behavior. So that's two knocks against him. And then you've got the underlying problem, which is what made him a candidate who couldn't succeed, which is that he's um, out of sync with the base of the party, and um, and then temperamentally wasn't making people enthusiastic in his most in his easiest state so it's going to be a long road back if he um if he, if he were to try and run for national office again on the other hand you know we've seen politics switches and swerves pretty quickly it's weird that he didn't get any of the benefit that uh, that Cruz and trump have gotten out of anger why are people so angry christie has that too there's economic insecurity in the world there didn't you know, there wasn't 70 years ago, but actually the economy is in better shape than it was. People have less economic insecurity than they did eight years ago. But so um, many people aren't seeing the benefits of the, you know, relative prosperity in the country. And they see around them that there are some people who are just doing insanely well. And it's that problem that one's sense of one's own satisfaction is uh, not controlled by, but influenced by how you compare yourself to the people around you. Plus, there is this deeply held, and it's true, conviction that in a lot of ways the system is rigged, and that people don't like that. Yeah, no, I think that's all true. Yeah, I think that's... The one other thing, which is I think if you're told that you're angry enough, that you kind of start to get angry, that, that one of the... That actually the American electorate has been made angrier than it started, than it was eight months ago, because they're constantly being told how angry everyone is. And so I think you you, you just get, you kind of gin yourself up, too. But I'm not saying that there isn't underlying, that the point, the things you just point out, Emily, are obviously very real. No, I, th- I think you're right. And also, there's not, in spending some time going back and looking at the McCain-Bush race of 2000, McCain was touching on a lot of these same issues, the idea that the system was rigged and that, and that money and the influence of money is what had rigged the system. There wasn't the economic piece of it, um, but there was his argument that basically on any issue, Washington is debating it. In the, inter- the debate that Washington is having is one where the interests of the people who give the money are, are the ones that the politicians pay the most attention to. And that's a very similar conversation to what we're hearing now from Sanders, but also Trump and, and Cruz. Um, and when, but when McCain was doing it, it, he then took that kind of rigged system and his solution wasn't to just kind of, um, you know, well, it was to blow it up a little bit, but it wasn't to just kind of obsess over the, um, wound. It was to say, we can be better and be greater. And it was a kind of return to duty and patriotism and, noble goals of governance and the U.S. experiment. There's not so much of that. in, the, in the, I mean, Donald Trump says we can make America great again, but that's a tagline. It's not a – it comes at the end of a speech in which he spent some 25 minutes talking about how horrible everything is. Um, as opposed to McCain, who would say it's bad and here are the – and then he would sort of lift the whole audience up again. And there's – Jeb Bush had promised to be a, a kind of more optimistic candidate and, and – and hasn't been. So I should say Kasich is the only one they legitimately trying to run a campaign of, of that has more lightness. Than Actually, just you mentioned your McCain study, John. We should uh, alert our listeners to, that you have a fantastic new 
podcast up and your whistle stop podcast about McCain's 2000 campaign, particularly in New Hampshire. It was really great. I listened to it this week, but it's also in the GabFest feed. So if you are a GabFest listener and you don't get whistle stop yet, you should check out John's um, McCain podcast in the GabFest feed and then go subscribe to whistle stop. It made me feel all nostalgic and affectionate toward John McCain. He sounded so much more pleasant than um, the current rhetoric. Oh, it was, it was so good. All those long quotes were great. Also, because we didn't have to listen to you talk. Um, <laughs> that is the trick to a good whistle stop. Question about Trump and then one about Rubio. It's kind of the same, or first Rubio. So so Rubio just was just completely knocked off his game by this thing with Christie. Clearly seems to have shaken some voters and shaken him. What is his path to recovery, Emily? I feel like he's revealed himself to be quite fragile and I guess we sort of knew this. There have been other big public moments like his gulping of water in that, um, you know, response to the State of the Union one year where he kind of freezes at super um, high octane public moments. But I thought he was a pretty good debater until now. And now I could, like, imagine Hillary Clinton kind of eating him for breakfast in a debate if she is so lucky as to be the Democratic nominee. John, what does he do? Well, I, can we before we do um, how he rescues his campaign? I'm that interesting. The word fragile is interesting. Tease David, pick up on that, or tease out why you guys think that was such a problem for him, both in the debate and afterwards. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, he he truly did seem to actually like not be listening on stage in this way that made you think that when he's under pressure, he goes into some kind of like automaton trance. You know, it took him a couple days to like, which I understand you want to hope something like that is just going to go away. You don't necessarily want to think that you made some terrible mistake, but he kind of continued to stubbornly repeat that same talking point, you know, and it is now like this meme of mockery that's going to follow him around. And the central thing I've learned from the GabFest is that in every campaign, there are moments where someone commits a blunder that reaffirms the electorate or the media's essential misgiving about them, and then it explodes. And now it's like going to follow him around. Part of your uh, whistle stop this week was also about Howard Dean's scream, and I, which, and I was trying to think if this was of that level of notoriety and memorableness. The, the Dean event was a kind of supernova, the last explosion of a thing that was already dying. I think in this case, the encapsulating debate performance replayed a million times over, I think it put a kind of lid on Rubio's ascent. Because Rubio has been, subsequent to his poor showing, has been saying, well, it was, you know, it was a bad, sort of a bad performance, as if it was merely the performance and not, as you pointed out, Emily, that underlying concern about his candidacy that it plugged into. One Trump question that I want to close with just, a, I need to just just spit and yell for a minute and when we close oh, this topic. Oh, we'll look forward to that. So the, that my, sounds great. My question is, we haven't really talked that much about Trump, even though Trump, you know, won New Hampshire by miles and is leading in the national polls everywhere. I think he's leading in the South Carolina polls. John will correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, it, it, does anyone, has anyone, is, is, we've talked for literally for months about, oh, well, this will end or there will be a strategy that will take him out. Nothing has gotten there. Any either of you see any strategy, any weakening that is going to damage Trump or undermine him that the other candidates can actually do against him? I don't I don't see it right now. I mean, 
the CW, which I was a part of, was... The conventional wisdom. Yeah, that sorry, the conventional wisdom, which I was helping to repeat, was that for a guy who prides himself on being a winner, that a loss is a challenge to that, that might derail him. Um, it didn't at all. I mean, Trump won among strongly conservatives, among conservatives. He won basically across the board in New Hampshire. So that suggests I, um, you know, a pretty resilient candidate. We'll, we'll see what happens among evangelicals in, in South Carolina if there's some kind of religious peace Social, social issue piece that could trip him up, but um, he seems pretty durable. So what about the delegate math? Is that still a problem for him just because, like, it's going to take so long for this thing to get settled out and then presumably Kasich, Bush, Rubio would whittle down to one, and so then, like, it's just hard, harder for Trump to actually get there? Well, that, I mean, that could be. Basically, the way the delegate thing would work is there becomes an alternative, and by Florida and Ohio, by the 15th of March where you have winner-take-all big states, you'd have an alternative who could get more of the vote. You know, they'd stop splitting it, and there'd be that one alternative. But that one alternative has to be really attractive to all those voters. And if you take the national polls as a proxy for Ohio and Florida, which is a not sort of too rigorous a way of doing things, but it's the best thing we can do, Trump's still doing really well. He's right, dominant. so basically they only have until March 15th to stop him. I, I think so. Uh, yeah, if he wins wow. the March 15 state, if he wins the March 15 states, it's over because he's winning. Then he's not just winning; he's winning with big, you know, and getting big delegate shares. And there's nothing, you know, that's going to get upended in future states, barring some cataclysmic, amazing, late-breaking development. I all right. So I we, we we've talked about this long enough. I just have to say because it needs to be said basically anytime you talk about Trump that. Uh, when you start, when you get into the horse race conversations about who wins, how they win, their margin of victory, how they do with people, it's because they you begin to treat them all alike. And we have to remember that Donald Trump is the most dangerous, serious presidential candidate in the history of humankind. You've been reading States. your Ezra Klein, maybe in the history of the United States. He wrote a piece making this this exact case. Oh, I mean, he's he's a he's a bully. He's a racist. He's a demagogue. He's stupid. He appeals to people's worst instincts. What he wants to do with the country is appalling and ruinous and not and wouldn't even accomplish what he wants to accomplish. You know, he has terrible ideas about war, about torture. He's dishonest. The country will be in terrible danger if he is the nominee. And I can only hope and pray, and I don't pray, that, that <laughs> but if you did, you would. this country gets gets around it because it's it is it when we treat it as though it's a, a spectacle because it's obviously incredibly interesting spectacle we forget that he is he's a he's like a hitler it's no joke he's not you know he doesn't have he doesn't yet have <laughs> genocidal tendencies but he is incredibly he's incredibly dangerous i think, I think you've lost all. you think you've gone over the edge when you compare him to hitler but why do you think he's stupid his, if you listen to his ideas about the economy, he's a mercantilist. He doesn't well, understand I mean, how the modern not, economy he works. He has some very, he's very smart. He has some really, like, quick thinking stuff going on in there, in addition to the idea that some of his ideas don't make any sense, right? Like, you got to give him that. Well, he's, I mean, it's incoherent 
I, I mean, I guess, I, I guess you you can say that all all dictators and all demagogues have like they're they're reptilian smart. They have ways of mani- manipulating people and working people up and and appealing to people's emotions. But his actual ideas, if he if he believes he wants to make America great, his actual ideas make no sense. You can't mercantilism is not a coherent twenty first century economic <laughs> philosophy. Hi. All right. Let's hear from our first sponsor this week. Texture, are you tired of buying expensive magazines at the store only to discover they have one or two articles that you actually enjoy? Texture is the solution. Starting at less than $10 per month, Texture offers unlimited access to all of your favorite magazines for less than the price of three magazines at the grocery store. You can browse hundreds of magazines and cherry pick the articles that interest you the most. The Texture editorial team recommends stories for you daily and they have curated collections that let you dive deeper into topics. Sign up for Texture right now, and in seconds, gain insider access to the very best reads plus exclusive content. And it's incredibly easy to use. Just click the headlines on the cover page, and Texture takes you right to the articles that interest you most. Stop wasting time flipping through pages. Stop wasting paper. Stop wasting your money. Get Texture today. And Texture is offering our listeners a free trial right now, when you go to texture.com slash political. Think about that. You'll gain unrestricted access to the world's best magazines, from back issues to the one on newsstands today. Take advantage of this offer right now, texture.com slash political. Okay, we've talked about the Republicans. Now let's talk, maybe it's slightly less length, about the Sanders-Clinton race. Bernie Sanders broiled Hillary Clinton 60 to less than 40 in New Hampshire, the largest margin of victory in a contested Democratic New Hampshire primary ever. He won the young, something like, you know, 170 to one. Uh, he won women by a lot. He won people who valued trust. Trust was an important quality by 92 to six. <laughs> he is raising money very fast. So what the heck is going on? John, it, does Hillary Clinton actually need to retool her campaign, or does she just need to get to next week? I think probably a little of both. Sometimes it's necessary to kind of retool just to show people that you've retooled, because you need to help with the storyline that, you know, well, things were in trouble, but then they did, you know, they turned the screwdriver this one way, and it all worked out fine, and so it's quote-unquote fixed. But, you know, in South Carolina, she faces a, a much less liberal, less white electorate, and both of those things are good for her. She's also organized. Why are the Democrats voting in South Carolina? They're voting on in South Carolina. So Nevada comes first for the Democrats on okay. the 20th, and then, in, and then um, in South Carolina for the Democrats is the 27th of February. Okay, thank you. Sorry. She needs to kind of do what she's been doing. They have an organization in South Carolina that when I visited, I guess it was six months ago, was working as if she were running against Barack Obama in 2008. I mean, it was working hard in the African-American community. She was coming down and visiting rural areas and going to African-American churches and really, like, she's not just showing up and saying, hey, uh, let me try and turn out the black vote. It's, um, it's been a, a, an assiduous effort here. I think she's strategically, they're probably fine. They just need to do something that allows the pundits to say, oh, she changed this and it fixed the whole campaign, even if it's not effectively that big of a difference. Emily, do you think there is a 
a different message that she needs to put out there? Well, she needs to figure out some way to offer more kind of sense of hope and possibility and more poetry. It's pretty clear that the electorate is craving that. I am feeling deeply influenced by a great piece in Slate that Michelle Goldberg wrote about how she as she, she, Michelle, supported Obama, really resented all of the feminist shaming and guilting about how you were supposed to support Hillary in 2008 as the first female candidate. We just had another round of that last weekend from Madeleine Albright and Gloria Steinem. But Michelle was arguing that she's come to terms with Clinton as she herself has gotten a little older and grappled more with all of the compromises that one makes along the way to reality, all the concessions to things that you wish were different. And then she also just pointed out this basic thing, which I somehow hadn't thought about for a while, which is just like that Hillary Clinton sometimes is not a very good politician because there is such a a sense of embattlement among the Clintons because they really have taken so many hits over the years. There's like this brittleness to the way Hillary encases herself and she isn't necessarily very nimble in the moment. So for me, the big example of this lately has been her response to the questions about the speeches she gave to the banks on Wall Street and her refusal to release those transcripts. I gotta say, like, it makes me think there's something really damning in those transcripts that she won't just release the damn speeches. I mean, that's not a private, off-the-record setting, or at least it shouldn't be. And again, it's like this idea that somehow she's going to wiggle through without doing the thing that would just, like, make the issue go away, like just apologizing for the private email server at her house. And it's like, I mean, it's sort of Rubio robot-esque in the sense that it confirms our questions about whether she's trustworthy and what kind of president she would really be. I I mean, I want to align myself with that Goldberg piece, too. I'm not a middle-aged woman. I'm a middle-aged man. But uh, I guess it was maybe it wasn't it wasn't directed at women. Was it, it? Was it was sort of the, ish, this idea of middle age. Yeah. I mean, that, I think it was I thought it was a really brilliant piece. It was uh, we do. That is that is the process of growing older is is compromising your ideals, whatever. I Not that I was much of an idealist as a 20 something. But um, but it is it is these this recognition that you kind of do what you can not. You can't do everything. You can do what you can. And yet Clinton's only won in New Hampshire with voters over the age of 65. But I guess, again, we should take into account John's point that she's about to move to a more sympathetic group of voters. David, do you feel like you've taken that journey in the last eight years relative to the way you felt about Obama? Or Um, Well, I think, I mean, I think Obama, Obama will be my lodestar. Obama is going to be my Roosevelt. You know, when I'm 80, I will think, who who is the great politician? Who's the politician I've most admired in my life? It's Obama. I admire him in, across every way you could admire somebody. Um, so I don't think, uh, but I don't think I admired him. I wasn't a particularly um, a hopey, changey person. I, I don't, I guess I don't, I guess, I guess the, 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 the weathering of middle age hap- has happened over, not over the last eight years, it's happened over the last 15 years. But I really have felt it, um, I really feel it around Hillary Clinton, who I just think is so smart and so tough and so capable and has done so much good for this country and, of course, has made, you know, mistakes and has, you know, been selfish and and self-serving and, you know, had compromises in her marriage. That, um, but but how can somebody who works that hard and for the right reasons uh, not be rewarded? It's painful. And yet she's her own worst enemy. 
I don't think she's her own worst enemy. I mean, I think like the email stuff was incredibly stupid. The way they handled the foundation, the money raising, probably yes, that was a mistake. But like, what has she done that's so that's so profoundly unethical or dangerous or wrong? I mean, Republicans talk about it all the time because that's what they want to talk about. You don't have to do anything profoundly dangerous or unethical or wrong. You can just give people reasons to think that you don't identify with them. That was another marker. She got really low points for in New Hampshire. You know, does this person understand people like me care about making my life better? I mean, it's crazy that she's scoring so low on that given her record. And yet, other disqualities that she's made. She, I feel like she thinks she can wall those decisions off, like go hang out with Goldman Sachs and, you know, give all these incredibly high paid speeches and people are still going to get that she's fundamentally for them. And they clearly but Emily, in New Hampshire. I just think if you compare Hillary Clinton to essentially any other candidate in this race. I mean, if you look at the ethical compromises that Donald Trump is making, if you look at Ted Cruz, the, the Ted Cruz, um, a uh, loan from Goldman Sachs is, is as seedy as anything that's happened with Wait, Hillary Clinton. Wait, how is the loan as seedy as anything? Oh, because it's the, the way they hid it. They hid a loan from Goldman Sachs. They they didn't disclose it on one form yeah, and not they on hid another. it, John. That's, they hid it. Well, wait, they hold on. They definitely, on. Is, they definitely played it. So that they definitely played that. The email server. They did. They designed an entire process to go around what was the normal way of doing things. And then, when caught, have been serially shading on what exactly was going on for months. That's not even close to comparable to to Cruz. And even if you take the worst Cruz thing, which is a single act of reporting of not reporting it on one disclosure but reporting it on another, you would never have found that the first lack of reporting if he hadn't reported it on the second. But even if you say that he's the, the most if you give them the most guilt on that one thing, it doesn't compare to a protracted, constant regime of behavior on the emails. I'm not, whatever your larger point, but on those two, it's not comparable. I, well, I think the, the level of secrecy that the Republicans have created. Well, now you're lumping in every United single wor- Republican. World, in the post-Citizens United world, yeah, well, Cruz, like I would put Co- Cruz. Yeah, I think it Coke, I think also, it Coke Brothers. she's not running against Ted Cruz or Donald Trump right now. She's running against Bernie Sanders, who, as far as we know, I mean, we'll see what people start digging up on him. But at the moment, he does not seem challenged. In no, the he's not way. challenged in the same way. He's challenged in that he's never run anything. He's he, Except, I guess, Burlington. He was mayor of Burlington many years ago. But he's not somebody who is a who has experience as an executive. He doesn't know anything about foreign policy. It is, I, look, I'm not going to, I, Bernie Sanders is a very appealing, he has lots of wonderful ideas about, about terrible things going on in the country. It is just, to me, it is, continues to be confounding that Hillary Clinton is, gets so little credit for the work she does and that her ethical missteps, which are real, they're not like non-existent, but her ethical missteps haunt her in a way that seems disproportionate to how bad they were and and really that that she just gets that she doesn't get credit is feels to me like a like a, a shame well she's, she's so obviously capable she's, and smart she's still likely to win the democratic nomination yeah no likely and she almost yeah. won it 
I guess I would say that I think you're right that there are ways in which Hillary gets um, things stick to her that seem disproportionate sometimes or unfair, or at least like they wouldn't stick to other candidates. But I also feel like it's really hard to untangle at this point why this is true. Some of it, yes, must relate to gender, but it's not just that. And so I also feel at some, at some level, like I don't, I can't figure it out anymore. And I'm just worried for her sake that in the end, it is going to be some kind of Achilles heel. Although the idea of Bernie Sanders truly being the Democratic nominee still seems kind of wild. Is there, is there, there's no plan C, John, for Democrats, is there? No, I mean, you'll get... No one's get, talking about that. People, people will, in order to keep readership up, will float Biden scenarios. And then when that can't happen because it's too late for him to get on the ballot in lots of places, they'll start talking about Bloomberg. So there will be a plan C only because people need to have a plan C in order to get people to um, read articles. But there's not a real plan C. <laughs> So the plan C, the plan C is by the the media, right. the media elite has a plan C. Yeah. What you got? You guys don't like to handicap Emily. Do you think there's any chance that Sanders is the nominee for the Democrats? Yeah, I do think there's a chance now, which I didn't think before because his margins of victory were so large and complete in New Hampshire. But I also think like we need to wait a couple of weeks and see what happens next and where this goes. Okay, let's wait a couple of weeks. We'll check back in on this next week. Let's hear from our next sponsor this week. Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Users can sign up as an Audible listener, which gives you book credits each month for a low monthly fee. And Audible is easy. You just download your book choices and you can access them on an iPhone, Android device, Kindle, iPod, or any other MP3 player. Unlike streaming or rental services, with Audible, you own your books. And WhisperSync for Voice lets you switch back and forth between reading the book on a Kindle or Kindle app and listening to the audiobook without ever losing your place or missing a word. And Audible is offering GabFest listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership if you go to audible.com slash GabFest, where you can choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Just download a title free and start listening. Audible has audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. So I was talking to John Dickerson about this, and he just listened to on Audible something fresh, a P.G. Woodhouse novel, and he said it's wonderfully read. I think Woodhouse on Audible would be awesome. He's just meant to be read aloud, so it'd be wonderful to listen to Woodhouse on Audible. Go to audible.com slash gabfest. That's audible.com slash gabfest, and get started today. Five conservative Supreme Court justices did something unprecedented this week. They stayed an EPA regulation before there was a final appeals court ruling on this regulation. This has never happened before, and this is a biggie. This was the EPA regs that President Obama had pushed that would limit coal-fired power plants in states because they're bad, and they're bad on, especially on CO2. The fact that these five justices, who are the five conservative justices you would expect, stayed this regulation strongly, strongly, strongly indicates that there are also five votes to stop the regulation when they finally hear the case on the merits, as there were votes to stop the EPA's regulation of mercury a couple of years ago, where the same set of justices said the EPA couldn't regulate mercury and they were were regulating it. So Emily, why is this a big deal? Um, Why is this unprecedented? Why are people talking about it in these unprecedented terms? 
Well, they stopped the regulation going into effect before the federal appeals court has even gotten a chance to finish reviewing it, and that's unusual. Usually you would let the lower court process play itself out. Uh, apparently they were deeply moved by all these companies saying that their uh, plants were going to have to shut down. And it's a huge deal because it affects the international climate accord that was just signed and suggests that the United States may not be able to fulfill the promises that President Obama made about cutting carbon reductions, uh, which is kind of terrifying for the world, I would say. Is there a way in which, if you still believe that it's important for Congress, because it's closest to the people, to adjudicate these kinds of things, and it's less good for the executive to go this far, that in a super long view of this, that the Supreme Court is forcing everyone to deal with the fact that Congress doesn't work well, um, and that this is a good thing. Yes, I think that's true in no sense that it's crazy to imagine that a 1970s piece of legislation, the Clean Air Act, is still what the federal government is basing its it's every environmental move on. However, I am concerned that the door is closing and the temperature is rising and that there's this urgent cry coming from the planet that doesn't have time for the super long view for the American political system to sort itself out. Yeah. Yeah, it is it is very it's very dangerous territory because also you have the way the Republicans have gotten on climate change. It's hard to imagine there's a Congress or a president who can take meaningful action. What was the legal basis for the Supreme Court striking down the mercury regulations, which I think are the predecessor for this? Why why is the Supreme Court so skeptical of the EPA's regulatory authority? Well, this all has to do with the wording of particular provisions in the Clean Air Act and whether, because the Clean Air Act was not written for carbon, right? And it wasn't even necessarily written for mercury. And so then you get into these quite abstruse questions about whether, you know, a kind of catch-all provision for other bad stuff in the air covers these particular substances. The last time around, there was a battle over the words appropriate and necessary in the law and cost-benefit analysis. So Justice Scalia said that the government had not done a cost-benefit analysis of the mercury regulations early enough in the process, even though they had done it later. So every time there's like a very particular fight, and yet the basic question each time is the text of the Clean Air Act and whether it sufficiently matches up with what the Obama administration is trying to do now. And you presume that they will lose on the merits of the Supreme Court, too, given that they lost here? No, I'm actually not sure about that, because there have been other cases that have gone the the EPA's way, even with this particular Supreme Court. I do think the way they stepped in this time is kind of, I mean, it was unprecedented, and I was totally surprised by it. On the other hand, this Supreme Court seems moved by, like, letting harm start or things that could seem like harm start as opposed to slowing them down. And I think, in all fairness to the the protests of the states that challenged this law— Well, there are a couple things. One is that there really were changes that these power plants were going to have to start making in the near term. The Obama administration argued, oh, they have until 2023, but there are like, you can't just turn on a dime. So I think that was like a real timing consideration. And then the second thing is, this is part of this broader debate over executive power and how much Obama can just do on his own. And the court 
you know, is taking the big challenge to Obama's immigration policy that it will hear in April and probably decide in June. And this is very much a part of that conversation. And the fact that that case is also alive and that the court added this also unprecedented kind of constitutional question about whether the president is faithfully executing the laws, it's it feels to me like it's all related. And these conservative justices are really concerned about executive power, a hobby horse of yours, David. So in that sense, like this is, you know, it's the Supreme Court worrying about separation of powers. Right. It is really. These are two powerful things, because when you think about what are the like truly fundamental foundational purposes of the federal government, the, one of the foundations is to protect public health. The federal government, because of the way it is structured, is the only entity that can really protect public health on a national level and these things which cross states, which, of course, pollution does and CO2 emissions do. And, and so you have to imagine a federal government that has very expansive powers to try to protect public health. And coal plants are incredibly dangerous. And the idea that that federal government's ability to constrain coal plants is, is going to be severely cut back is so disturbing when you think about how much damage that will do in every way, not just on CO2, but in, on other forms of airborne disease or airborne pollution. John, let's one last question about this, which is that I have not noticed in either campaign very much talk about the Supreme Court um, as, a, as a campaign issue, even though next president is very likely to have one or more. Uh, I mean, there are a bunch of very old justices. Is that actually being talked about or not? Well, you know, it's a great point. Um, it's a big, big deal among conservatives, and I, but it's not talked about much. And the reason it's a big deal, obviously, for the very obvious reasons, but I think it's what's behind, even if it's not articulated, it's at the base of the brain in these conversations about who's a real conservative and who isn't. Because in theory, if you're not really a conservative, you won't be on the lookout when you name justice, you know, potential justice. You won't be on the lookout for the important things you need to do to make sure you don't name a David, another David Souter. David Souter named by George Herbert Walker Bush, who didn't turn out to be sufficiently conservative by the light. At all conservative. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not at all conservative. So um, if you don't care enough about conservative principles at a deep level, you're going to miss it, and therefore you'll pick somebody who's more broadly um, uh, liked or so forth and so on. And I could imagine definitely Ted Cruz bringing that up here in South Carolina, both because it accentuates the strength of his. He's not going to pick the wrong kind of jurist. Secondly, it accentuates a, a vulnerability of Trump's, which is Trump's just not going to pay enough attention. You know, he's going to kind of just phone it in on this. In the end, though, is it the um, kind of thing that voters who care the most about it are already settled on who they want? You know, these tend to be pretty elite people who think about the, the Supreme Court issue, and therefore his crew's kind of already gotten all those people. Or, in other words, is, it, is an opinion bringing it up moves voters? I don't know. But... Um, we're going to hear so much about the Supreme Court in June because there's going to be this huge abortion decision, biggest case in 24 years at, on abortion. And then there's going to be the immigration decision. So just like they're holding their powder maybe a little bit. but And I guess that will be post-primaries, but it's, it, it's going to loom large. Well, me. and also as a general election, you know, when we get into the general election, the things I love, which are the attributes of the presidency, who has the skills and talents to handle the job, won't matter at all. 
because it's going to become just what's color what's the color of your jersey because if i care about immigration and abortion i just want to make sure that there are justices in the supreme court who are on my team and the same is true with lots of other policies as well so i think you're right in the general election and in the and when those decisions are coming around it's going to be a big deal all right let's wrap that topic and hear from our last sponsor today which is bonobos.com every guy wants to look his best but there are so many things i would rather do with my time i would literally rather do anything else with my time than shop for clothes but bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit they have clothes for any body type any fit preference you can browse easily online through top quality styles Bonobos has free, easy shipping and returns, and they have extremely personable and fast service. And you can even try on clothes at one of their guide shops before you buy. Bonobos offers a full line of stylish men's clothing, all meticulously crafted for a better fit. They have shirts for the office or the weekend, suits that fit like they've been tailored just for you. They have jackets and outerwear, ties, belts, and shoes. You will look stylish, you'll feel comfortable, and you get to pick your perfect fit from slim to standard to tall. And for a limited time, all new customers, especially GabFest listeners, can get 20% off their first order when you go to bonobos.com slash GabFest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash GabFest to discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better-fitting wardrobe can make. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're in Greenville, South Carolina, John Dickerson and you need a post-debate prep relief. You're having, a, you're having the alcohol that is what gets you through the day, gets you through the evening. What are you going to chatter about? I am going to chatter about a, a piece I read in theconversation.com, which is about the fact that we take pictures of everything, and kids take pictures in particular of everything, Instagram replacing the other social media as their go-to place. There have now been studies, one by psychologist Marianne Gary, about the role the overabundance of digital images have on your memory formation, and that basically you don't create narratives in your head when you're taking pictures. So that does two things. One, when you're taking the pictures, but also when you're looking at all these pictures, unless they're in some kind of timeline or contextualization, you lose the narrative in which those images take place. And so you don't retain the memory the way you would if you created it in your own brain. And there's also research by psychologist Linda Henkel that there is a photo-taking impairment effect, which is that basically by photographing it discourages remembering. So it fascinates me because I've always made the case that there are a lot of people who said, oh, stop and enjoy the moment. You're not enjoying it if you're, if you're taking a picture of it. I actually totally disagree. I think that the choice of photography and why you take a picture and what you're thinking about and all of that is a more engaged way to behave. And that then also you look back on the photographs and remember the moment and have a richer interaction with it. But that may just be my own weird peculiarity and not the way most people uh, interact with their photographing devices they now carry around with them everywhere. Uh, so I like that you went against your own confirmation bias. <laughs> if I were you, I would have seen that study and been like, oh, that must be wrong, and moved right along. Well, it, it, you know, I don't, I, no, I, I went the third way, which is to say the study might be right, but that's only because the people are doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true for you. Right. All right. And Baz. I'm in the middle of reading A Little Life by Hanya 
Yana Gahara. I hope I'm saying that right. It's a really interesting book. I picked it up because Slate's Audio Book Club did an episode about it recently, and it's gotten a lot of attention. It was a finalist for the Man Booker Prize and the National Book Award. It's a big book about four male friends. It took me a while to start reading it because it has this weird cover illustration of a guy wincing in pain, which makes sense in terms of the book story, but for a while was like off-putting to me. But now that I'm in the thick of it, I'm completely absorbed by it. David, have you read it? No, Hannah read it. I I somehow I didn't know that was what it was about. I I am one of these people who looked at the cover and thought this does not look like a book I want to read. But it's good, you're saying. Yeah, and the four male friends, they're college friends, but they have like this true and deep bond that really continues and propels them forward. I mean, you guys have good friends, but this is a kind of male friendship that I feel like I don't hear that much about. Cool. Cool. My chatter, I want to first I'm going to endorse a cocktail. I've just discovered the power of the shrub. These like sort of flavored vinegars that you can put in with vodka, especially love it so good. That's my actual cocktail. But my other endorsement is uh, an apology of sorts to you, Emily. Really? How exciting! I, for years, yeah, for years I've belittled you, maybe maybe to your face, but certainly behind your back for your eating breakfast. Like I just don't eat breakfast. I haven't eaten breakfast for years. Except for I've your bubble thought, tea, which totally counts. Yeah, well, bubble tea, I, you know, I'd have it at 11 o'clock after oh, okay. being out for five hours. So it's not, I wouldn't, it doesn't really count as breakfast. Because of a kind of like a change in my eating habits, I've been eating breakfast. It's so great. Breakfast is awesome. I don't know why, why I've been so opposed to it. You feel good. It makes you feel better all morning. So wait, how did your eating habits change? Are you not eating late at night? No, it just, um, we did the Sarah Dickerman Bon Appetit New Year's Cleanse, which has a lot of breakfast in it. Ah. And so I just got into the habit while I was doing this of like, oh, I'll have some, you know, oatmeal or like today I had avocado and rye crackers for breakfast. So delicious. You just, you just, it makes everything better. I didn't realize it. It's great. So I apologize to you. No I've problem. I didn't sometimes. feel personally attacked about that. But I'm, I accept your apology for all of us breakfast eaters out there. All right. That's it for the show this week. Our intern is Elle Biscard-Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank with help this week from Zach Dinerstein. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Annie Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply, the network of which we are a part. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. I've been using our Twitter feed a lot recently. Check out our Twitter feed. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. And our email address is GabFest at slate.com. And please, of course, subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes. We've got just, if you subscribe, you're getting lots of extras. We have John's whistle stop was in the feed this week. We didn't, Emily and I did an extra show after New Hampshire on Wednesday. So you can get lots and lots of shows if you Search for the Slate Political Gap Fest in the iTunes store. For Emily and John, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week after John's debate. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>